Well, tonight on Boiling Point Science, we talk to Associate Professor Patrick O'Connor from the University of Adelaide about the detection of varroa mice in beehives in New South Wales. We'll discuss this parasitic mice, its threat to the honey and broader agricultural industries, and what else it might represent in the context of feral honeybees in Australia's natural environment. This and some tenuously connected tunes coming up. Stay with us. Welcome back to Boiling Point Science, coming to you live from the Alan Slate studio at Eastside 89.7 FM. Your hosts here are Tim and Chantel. Hello. And we're joined on the phone by Associate Professor Patrick O'Connor from the University of Adelaide. Patrick, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Hello, Tim. Hello, Chantel. Hello. Great great to hear from you. Great to speak to you. Um, we, uh, we, we got quite excited by uh, seeing your sort of different take on this uh, varroa mite outbreak uh, with your conversation article or article in the conversation uh, a few weeks ago now in, in June. And so we thought it'd be great to catch up and hear your uh, take on it and all. Um, but I guess maybe we should start with... I have an important question. Oh, go. Pa- Patrick, are you an expert in varroa mites? Uh, I'm not a I'm not an expert in mites or bees in that uh-huh. sense, um, but I have done work on... Uh, and in in uh, pollinator programs, um, but I'm more of a more broadly an ecologist of systems, um, and have an interest in the economics of uh, natural capital and ecosystem services. Okay. For context, what is Varroa destructor? I mean, it's a great name, but aside from that, what is it? So it's a tiny mite, about um, a millimeter long, that lives on um, apis. Uh, bees, which are Apis mellifera, is the honeybee that we know from making honey in Australia in, in hives uh, that people commercially cultivate around the country. Um, and it lives on the, it, it, it isn't in Australia, but it is in almost every other country in the world. It's only recently arrived in Australia um, as an outbreak, uh, which is now trying to be eradicated. But the mite itself um, lives on the honeybee. On its uh, on the adult end larvae uh, sucks out its juices essentially and sometimes mm-hmm. injects it with um, sort of fluid backwards and and leaves some uh, viruses on the bee and moves the viruses around as well as the direct uh, parasitizing effect. So it's not it's not very pleasant to the bee there and it's a vector for other things also. That's rather unpleasant. I can see why there might be a bit of a motivation to uh, to get rid of it or at least. Put these bees out of their misery. Um, so, how do they how do they detect them? I heard about these sentinel hives. Um, is that something you can sh- uh, shed some light on, Patrick? Yeah. So, because this was such this is such a commercial hazard, um, then if a quarantine systems, uh, you know, if, uh, there's a lot of shipping and things come in, and and things are inspected for um, parasites, and there, there will be controls at the quarantine stations. And at borders, however, uh, around uh, at some distance, but around uh, ports, there are these sentinel hives. They're essentially honeybee hives where somebody goes around and manages them and maintains them and just keeps an eye on whether anything has anything like the varroa mite has arrived because we know that it was a high risk. And then, if it's seen in one of those hives, then action can be taken to quarantine an area. Um, off and see if the outbreak can be controlled. 
just for context, I mean, everything, every organism realistically has parasites at some level. What I mean, what's the impact of Varroa? Uh, so Varroa, uh, its big impact commercially is that it um, it does have a significant effect on commercial honeybees and it can be managed um, and it can be managed chemically, it can be managed with a bit of hive husbandry um, and there's even efforts to breed bees that are that it's harder for the mites to hang on to by changing the hair density on bees, etc. Um, but uh, the impact overall is that it takes more work to manage the commercial hive um, and, th- and that can lead and, and also unmanaged, it can destroy hives. And so the extra work means that, uh, you know, the, a given number of, um, a given apiarist might reduce the number of hives, hives that they can hold um, or increase their costs. Or you also have to think about managing the risks of only being able to control the parasite when honey's not being produced, etc., to avoid contaminating any foodstuffs. So right. that, that's what it does. It makes beekeeping harder and potentially has an economic impact by reducing the number of hives. And you mentioned that, um, I mean, well, it's been a lot in the, the all sort of forms of media how this is um, the first time I think it's been detected here. Um, so that implies it's, it's elsewhere in other um, jurisdictions, other ecosystems um, where you know, the, these this these particular bees, the European honeybees that we rely on for the um, honey industry and then for some other sort of pollinating duties in other uh, agricultural industries. How are those other jurisdictions, um, how do they manage it? Is it are those three things you mentioned, chemicals, husbandry and hair density via the gene side of things? Yeah, so, um, sorry Tim, you're just a little bit faint there, but what uh, what they do in other places is they manage with chemicals, they manage with hive husbandry. Um, the varroa mites probably been being managed in Europe and Asia and in the US sort of from the late 60s onwards. It spread to New Zealand about 15 years ago um, and uh, was unable to be contained. And so all of those management chemical and husbandry techniques have had to be brought into New Zealand. Um, the impact of that to the industry in Australia has been estimated at about a $70 million impact um, to agriculture, and that's partly the honey production, but it's also because there are a number of crops that are obligatory honeybee pollinated, like almonds, which are very, which have been a, a high-value crop in recent years in Australia. And so honeybees uh, are moved to almonds at a certain time of the year for pollination, and they're they're very difficult to pollinate without honeybees. So um, that if you reduce the number of hives or you can't move hives around because of contaminations, then you can have a serious impact on the honey crop, on on the almond crop. Then there are other crops like um, apples and berries that are also um, also receive pollination services from commercial hives. I, I do wonder though. I mean, European honeybees obviously not native to Australia, but we have hundreds and hundreds of native bee species here, I think in the order of around 700, if my memory is correct. I haven't checked that statement, so you can correct me. Um, Why this emphasis on a single introduced species? Why not some more emphasis on some of the natives which which buzz pollinate, for example? Uh, So the... 
the Apis mellifera, the commercial honeybee, the European honeybee, is very efficient at, at uh, harvesting nectar and pollen from a wide range of resources. And um, even though it's not always the most efficient insect at pollinating even crops, let alone some native plants, um, it can be managed in, in large populations, you know, 50,000 bees in a hive and, uh, and 95 hives on the back of a truck. Um, so that we can move a lot of pollinator and nectar scavenging resources around really easily and manage those resources. Um, so it's such a commercial advantage over other species that other species are either not explored or from the probably 2,000 native bee species, um, the most of those other native bee species are not uh, colony living, or they don't live in such numbers that they could be, they would be amenable to that kind of uh, apiculture. Um, and even even though they may serve as pollinators of crops as well as native plants, in the locations where they exist, they're not as tractable for movement. Um, except there are some stingless native bees that are being used, and they they are being used in some places in Queensland for crops like macadamia and things. Um, but that's they partly effective there because it's so warm, so they're able to uh, able to work in that location. But in many other places, the other thing is to mention is that many other uh, insects, including uh, and some birds and mammals, actually provide pollination services as well. Um, so flies and wasps and other things also provide pollination. But the the commercial honeybee is the most tractable for cultivation and movement. Mm. Makes sense. Orders of scale. I mean, maybe we just need to invest in selective breeding for some of our native species. Um, that's a throwaway statement. Um, do you want to tell us what you proposed in the conversation and why it and it caused a bit of a buzz? I know. Uh, <laughs> Tim loves Someone had Tim a pun. <laughs> Wonderful. I'm jealous. Um, so what I, I – it wasn't so much a proposal as a thought experiment that – um, we have thousands of people taking action on environment, revegetating, managing weeds, managing feral animals. We, you know, looking after endangered species and systems. We have a huge amount of effort made in that regard. And what we're looking for to get a big boost in biodiversity conservation ahead of what we recognise as a biodiversity crisis um, exacerbated by climate change. What we're looking for is opportunities to get a really big bump up, a really big uh, opportunity for recovery of our systems that are under under some stress um, and if we could get such an opportunity um, it would buy us time for some of the other things we're trying to do it would give us uh, a boost that might be needed um, as you know old seed banks decline as systems are more impacted by uh, invasion from introduced species etc and so uh, feral honeybees uh, have radiated out from commercial hives over the couple of hundred years that honeybees have been introduced to Australia. And so almost every niche that a honeybee could, a, a European honeybee could exploit in Australia is now exploited with a feral hive. And so if the royal mite were to get into those feral hives, um, experience shows that they would probably knock that down knock those hives down to maybe 10% of their current extent. 
And that relief from competition with the feral honeybees for hollows, for birds, possums, bats, native insects, that relief from competition for the for the energy resources of nectar and pollen, and that relief from the over-exploitation of pollination by honeybees relative to what natives might do more sensitively and specifically in the better matching of things evolved to this continent, that boost might be so valuable that um, we would be crazy to miss it, even if it cost agriculture $70 million or, or another figure if we had to really look at it more deeply. So what you are saying is that if we didn't combat varroa mite and let it impact wild feral populations, the benefit to the environment, including native insects and pollinators, but also um, hollow, hollow dwelling, like possums and birds, which lose their homes to feral bees, could be of more benefit than the impact to agriculture. Is that a yeah, fair so summary? I'm not, yeah, I mean, it sounds a bit, you know, homemaker and just a bit nice to think about possums and, and birds having hollows. But we have many patches and many systems and many fragmented landscapes where um, biodiversity decline is real and palpable and uh, that those pressures coming from many places, but including feral honeybees, are real. And um, what my proposal is, is not to release the varroa mite, but it really was to say, why are we not in a position where we can adequately value what we, what we are losing in biodiversity so that if the varroa mite were to get out of our quarantine control, we would know what gain we would get. And a corollary of that is, why, why would we not be thinking about the potential gain from, the, from varroa mite spreading around the country and knocking out feral honeybees, um, even though we might want to put in place proper biocontrol uh, learning before we let that happen? rather than just the agriculturally-minded approach of keep the bee, keep the varroa mite out because it will hurt agriculture. Mm. Um, you know, biocontrols are two-edged swords, and so you, you've got to swing pretty carefully not to cut yourself. <laughs> but um, the varroa mite has potential as a... Um, as a biocontrol, and we, but we don't adequately understand what the gains would be, and and so we probably think not understanding makes us think they might very not might not be very large. But I'm I'm saying, and in the article I sort of pointed towards the beginning of work that shows that the um, environmental gains from intact and well-regulated systems can be huge, and missing opportunities to increase those values is a bit stupid. Yeah, no, it's um, it's fascinating. Is that where your your kind of look? As you talked about how economics took your heart, no, it took your heart, or took you. <laughs> it has been sort of the the you know the the, the discipline you sort of followed, um, uh, you know, and, and sort of journeyed to. Um, is that that's kind of like bringing economics and and biology and and conservation all together? Sort of seems like the mix. Or is that this position you're bringing, uh, you're arriving at? I think it feels like, yeah, we've got one side of the argument sort of with a dollar value next to it that we can go, look how much loss there will be. But it's an argument for what, yeah, what are the gains? What, how do we value, how do we put a dollar, yeah. dollar on all these other um, elements of a, of a complicated system, but we've got measures for other parts of it, right? So Yeah, there's two things in what 
there's two things I think in what you're asking there, Tim. One is um, what are the issues about why we don't think about these things differently? The other is um, why am I out on a limb here thinking about it differently than other people might have been thinking about it? Because you're brave. How did I end up there? Um, the easy the answer to the first one is that um, those things which are easily monetizable in the fungible units of dollars uh, and where beneficiaries are easy to identify, usually a private person gains from an activity and they gain in monetary terms, um, those things uh, tend to dominate over benefits that we derive more um, diffusely. So you and I are both enjoying biodiversity right now uh, and what it's doing right now. And we're going to go for a walk on the weekend and enjoy it in a different way. And we're going to drink some water and enjoy it a different way. All of those benefits, are, but they are derived diffusely and they're derived relatively indirectly. When I drink clean water, because it's been filtered by a functioning catchment, I, I don't think about the fact that that catchment has to be maintained with healthy pollination approaches uh, within systems that I don't put that much control into. I just think the water is good because it came off green hills. Mm. And so those diffuse and indirect benefits are much harder to assess and they rarely have dollar values attached to them and so they're less um, amenable to decisions. In terms of the second part about how does, how does Patrick end up there, um, I suppose I was interested in science because I was interested in how things work and I extended that to how do, how do decisions work and one of the things about what I realised about science is that I was often working toward, with and towards and around me, I was seeing people uh, uncovering mechanisms in, with science um, and sort of turning around looking for a benevolent dictator to take action on the mechanism because we could discover all kinds of ways of improving biodiversity or the way that agriculture functions um, and we just need somebody who wants to, wants to do it. And what I found in economics was a bit less concerned about the mechanism. We can assume a bunch of things about mechanisms, but we have to fundamentally understand how people would behave if the mechanism was available. And so when I put the two things together, I started to realise that there was a, a real need in bringing economics to environmental propositions and to using a more intimate view of science um, in economics than is otherwise just, you know, the mechanisms are just assumed. So that's probably how I got interested in it. Quite the journey. From the human angle. I also liked how you described the, the conversation piece as a, as a thought piece, you know, to get the get the creative, well, just get the conversation. Well, can't help myself repeating words. Oh, no. that, that's why I guess it's called the conversation. Getting it out there. Um, I did have a question. Because your article is a thought experiment and it's, um, a little bit, you know, I'm. what if we did this? Um, you're proposing maybe sensibly um, tracking what the ecological impact of Varroa in the environment would be. Do you actually have any thoughts for how that could be plausibly achieved? So it is a thought experiment. There are risk, real risks of releasing any foreign uh, organism into Australia because of its uh, evolution away from some of the other systems where species like the varroa might have evolved. Um, so there are genuine risks there and, and normal biocontrol protocols would be required if you were thinking about doing that deliberately 
the fact that it might happen to us accidentally when we've had 15 years to be more deliberate kind of says something about the way we thought about that over those 15 years. Um, the Sorry, your question, Chantelle, is to Pract how would we look at what the benefits might be? Yeah, practically. So practically, how could you do this as a controlled experiment? You know, yeah, is, well, is anybody setting up baseline studies? Yeah. Hmm. Well, the first thing you would do is start in Western Australia because New South Wales already has the varroa mite outbreak, which may or may not be under control. I, I, I saw some news that there was a new um, notification in, in a, at some distance from the past notifications only today, I think. Um, but, you know, let, let's uh, hope that the varroa mite gets mopped up in this attempt to control it, and then we could sit back and say what would be a sensible thing to do if we had our choices but you might start in Western Australia by measuring um, rates of pollination, looking at what what current native pollinators and feral animals are doing. There would be some observational and empirical studies to think about how how pollination and nectar resources are um, being used. And the, while there is a bit of study around that, that could definitely be improved. And you could probably target systems where you think um, native and specialised pollinators are really important. Um, uh, and those systems where there's some evidence that there's been a decline as a consequence of the loss of native pollinators and the overabundance of, of generalist pollinators like the honeybee. Um, and so with that, for armed with that information, you might then be able to look at what happens if, as the varroa mite comes in. I mean... You would, but again, that's a kind of a scientific approach, isn't it? Because we'd be observing something we couldn't do anything about um, rather than thinking ahead. Mm. If we had thought about this ahead of time, we might have studied these systems and in very closed experiments looked at the possibility of removing the feral honeybee and seeing what happens. Um, but that would be a challenging thing to do because the honeybee is ubiquitous and you know about the same size as many other insects, so hard to exclude. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Do you, just as a sort of segue, while we're talking about um, thinking ahead, is there any other species that you may apply this to that haven't arrived yet but are on the horizon that might have a similar impact as varroa? Do you mean to honeybees? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I don't think there's anything that, um, and there are other diseases, but they, honeybee, the honeybee, uh, sorry, the varroa impact is um, a little bit unique in the sense that it's not it's not the virus itself; it's the vector for a parasite, the parasite vector, and of and virus spread. Um, so it's probably a bit unique in that regard. Um, and our native bees, most of our native bees, in fact, I think all, are substantially evolutionarily different than the honeybee. So. We don't know. Um, we, we're pretty confident at this stage that the varroa mite wouldn't jump to native bees, but it's not impossible because we're mm. still identifying them. So we don't know everything about their ecology. Um, and there is some evidence that native bees might take up the viruses that the varroa mite could spread, although that hasn't been tested in Australia. And where it has been tested, it's been tested in fairly artificial circumstances by injecting native bees in Europe with uh, with viruses rather mm. than 
making them take them up off flowers or something, which is a different mechanism of taking up the virus. So we don't know that much, but we... The, the, I mean, the question about my article really is asking why are we in a situation where we don't know, where we know a lot and we're prepared to act at quite a large expense for something we do know about while ignoring something that could be incredibly value, valuable just because we have a bit of trouble thinking about indirect and diffuse things. Mm. Um, so you proposed this idea last month. What's been the response that you've received? Well, I did get a bit of hate mail, um, certainly. I got called an idiot a few times because it isn't, um, you know, I mean, it is, there are there are genuine risks, which I did identify, of introducing a species to Australia. So, you know, it's easy to say, well, you're just going to introduce another cane toad and it's going to go wild. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I did, I did actually, if you read the article, make those caveats. Mm. Um I think otherwise there is just the general sentiment um, that why would you why would you cost yourself a dollar in agriculture for this putative environmental benefit? Um, can't we get the environmental benefit another way, kind of thing, without hurting agriculture? Uh, and I suppose I was trying to push something a little bit more radical, which is um, we're not actually getting that far with our slow and manual intervention in environmental matters. Maybe we need to take a few more radical approaches and we should look at the options. Mm, I can't... Um, so it, but the good thing is that, you know, the conversation article allows comments and for almost every negative comment, somebody else came in and provided a very sensible answer, which was better than I would have written. So wonderful. Uh, the argument had some friends. That's great. Yeah, I can't help thinking that this is sort of like, a, you know, a component in ecosystem health. Um, you know, our ecosystems and not in a particularly good way. And every every little bit that we can do to improve their health Im- improves their likelihood of, of sustaining themselves and us as well. So, yeah, I don't think there's anything wrong with proposing different ideas and being brave in the way we think. Well, I think the way to think about it is that in having the, the many, many uh, commercial honey beekeepers and hives and the ubiquitous feral honeybee we have made a trade-off for agriculture against the environment Mm -hmm. that's a trade-off now it's not a trade-off we we meant it's not intended and um it's not one that we could easily manage but it is nonetheless a trade-off that we accept uh my proposal was that we think about whether we wouldn't reverse that trade-off at at a bit of a cost to agriculture um but, you know, again, trade-offs are about people being able to weigh values. And until we fully express our valuing of nature, we will probably keep acting for sort of shorter-term, more direct benefits. Some different food for thought, Patrick. I want to thank you so much for coming on the show uh, with us this evening. And um, you, you sent a song through for us to play, uh, Old Pine by Ben Howard. Do you mind just sharing with us... Uh why you chose that song and uh, we'll um, we'll put it on as you're describing that to us and um, yeah tell us about it yeah sure so I was um, I was actually working on a project in Uganda reading a book uh, called Overstory which you by Richard Powers which you may have heard of which is a very powerful book about um, the loss of biodiversity if you like um, uh, well it's a novel but that's a theme in it and the 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 
Ben Howard song came at a similar time, and I and I was immediately attracted to its message of the that exhilaration of uh, contact with nature, that connection to natural phenomenon, um, and to the to the touch of the earth and those things. So you know, without getting spooky about it. Um, just it just gave, it gives me a really good feeling of being in contact with nature. Absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much, Associate, Associate Professor Patrick O'Connor. Uh, this has been Boiling Point East on Eastside 89.7 FM. We'll be back with you next Tuesday. Chantel, thanks for coming in too. Thank you very much. Bye. Coming up next is Expansions on Eastside 89.7 FM. Just a blessed morning Careless and young, free as the birds that fly.